It's good. It's good to do these things. Four years ago, we laid hand on those brothers, laid hands on those brothers, and just grateful for their work and their faithfulness through these years. Again, I think I reminded you all last week that this month also uh, is the third year, uh, a third year anniversary of being in this community, this building, early March 2015. We were here. Does anybody remember those days? Raise your hand if you remember those days. Okay, there's still some hands here. Absolutely. Does anybody remember what this place looked like, this particular room, uh, what this place looked like when we got it, right? We, we did a lot in here, didn't we, right? The, the carpet, uh, the chairs you're sitting on, the sound system, the paint, uh, the floors here uh, that were once carpeted. We found hardwood underneath and said, man, let's do something with that. Uh, the stage that was built, the sound equipment, there was lighting put in. There was a lot done to this sanctuary as we came in. But understand this. There was one thing that we did not do to this place. There was one uh, part of this sanctuary that uh, for some reason uh, we wanted to stay constant, to use that word again. Does anybody have any guess what part of this room was here that we did not mess with? The cross. It's interesting, right? It's interesting to think about that symbol for a moment. It's interesting to think about all the changes that were made in this building for, to prepare the people of God at Renovation Church for worship in this place. But there was one thing that we did not mess with. There was one thing that we did not change. It was and continues to be that symbol of the cross. What is it about the symbol of the cross that we didn't want to mess with? What is it about this uh, symbol that as some might look at it and say that's a little odd? Is that not a symbol of a very gruesome and horrific process of death? That seems a little odd for a group of people to keep and not want to change and put on display as the center of their room, the focal point of their worship. Why would somebody do that? What is the significance of this cross, this symbol? Today, we're in Romans again, chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, and we are focusing our attention on the cross of Jesus Christ. If anybody asks you what was the sermon about today, you're going to tell them it was about the cross of Jesus and they say, be a little bit more specific with me about what you mean. Well, it's this. It's about the love of God in the death of Jesus on the cross. Today, we're going to take a look at this symbol, more so look beyond this symbol and look at the significance of this symbol. The love of God in the death of His Son, 
Jesus Christ. So let's look together. And it's possible that many of us have a superficial understanding and therefore a skin-deep appreciation of this symbol and its significance. And there may be even some people here today that doubt the love of God. It's reality. It's application. They doubt its necessity. And they doubt its joy. And so if you're here today and you have any doubt about the love of God in Jesus Christ on the cross, we pray that your doubts will be dispelled and removed. And like the readers in Paul's day, you'll be rest assured of the love of God in Jesus Christ on the cross. So let's turn Romans 5, 6 through 11. Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. Paul concludes his previous section by reassuring the readers of the love of God that had been poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul is concerned to reassure these Christians, those who had placed their faith and hope in Christ, in His work, of God's very real love for them. And so he tells them of this receiving in, this subjective experience that they have because the Holy Spirit now lives inside of them. God's love is poured into them by that Holy Spirit. And now, in this next section that we're focusing on today, Paul is speaking of an act of love, the reality of God's love that happens outside of them. An objective work, signed, sealed, delivered, outside of them, that is the very foundation of receiving the love that they know by the Spirit inside of them. And so again, Paul wants to reassure these people of the love of God. He wants to remind them of how they can know the love of God and reassure them 
that it is real. And so I'm wondering here today if there's anybody here that doubts it again. I'm going to bring that up again. Does anybody doubt the love of God here today? It's reality. It's application. It's necessity. It's joy. Does anybody doubt the love of God today? Let me be very straightforward today with the message. This is for every person to hear. Especially those who know Jesus by faith. There is no need to doubt the reality of the love of God in Jesus Christ for you. There is no need to doubt the reality of God's love in Jesus Christ. How can I make such a statement? Well, there's real proof of it. There's real people who receive it. There's real effects for those who have received it. And there are real joys that come with it. There is no need to doubt the love of God in Jesus Christ today. Look at what it says. Verse 8. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows His love. God demonstrates His love. Another version says, God commends His love to us. Or maybe more accurately, God proves His love. Far too often in my own life and in society, love is all words. I love you. But everybody looks for what? The action that is attached to it. There are words and there are feelings, but there's something that proves love when there's action, right? Don't just tell me you love me. What? Show me. Demonstrate it. Prove it with your actions. And what we see here in verse 8 is that God shows His love for us. God shows it. He commends it. He demonstrates it in a real moment in time, in human history, and it's right there on the cross. God demonstrates, proves, shows the real love that He has in the real event of the cross, of Calvary. The love of God is not theoretical. It's not conceptual. It's not merely emotional. It is historical. It happened. It's real. And it happened in one event, the love of God in the death of Jesus Christ, His Son, on the cross, just as He foretold and promised. Promised. You see, God's love is not merely word only, but it is action. It is both word and action. The Gospel accounts, even if you look at the recording of the details of the Gospel writers, there is so much of an emphasis in all four on what? The crucifixion narratives. Showing with detail and precision and emphasizing the reality, the historic work and event of the passion, the crucifixion, the death, burial of Jesus Christ. This is a very real event that occurred in human history. And so there is no need for us to doubt the reality of God's love in Jesus Christ. He demonstrated it. Amen? He demonstrated it. 
Jerry Bridges says, if we want to prove, if, I'm sorry, if we want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God offered up His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. Amen? There is no need to doubt God's love for us in Jesus Christ. He demonstrated it. And for that, we give Him praise. But you might say to yourself this, yeah, I know that God's love is real. Yeah, I understand. I don't doubt its reality. But I do doubt its application to me. I understand that it happened, but it could not be applied. It could not be received. It could not be enjoyed by me. Or one might say, yeah, it might be enjoyed by me, but not that person, not that collection of people, not someone that commits that kind of wrong or sin. There are certain people that are simply out of bounds from receiving and enjoying the love of God in Jesus Christ in that death. So you may say, sure, I don't doubt its reality. I believe that that event occurred, but I do not believe that it is applied for someone like me. You don't understand what I've done and how far sin has taken me. But then I say this to you. Describe for me the kind of person that God loves. This week I just felt called to Maisie's Meats for lunch. You ever have that internal calling? Mm-hmm. So, of course, I cut myself a half sandwich with triple the meat and uh, hung out there a little bit. There was a worker there that I invited to come to our Easter services, and the person said to me, yeah, if I go there, the place will burn down. And I said, why would you say that? Why would you say that? I said, are you assuming that God would not love you and accept you and welcome you in? And that you, what, what are you saying? And then I asked him the question, uh, describe to me the kind of person that God, God loves. And the person said, okay, someone that's non-hypocritical. I said, okay. What else? How else would you describe the person that God loves? He said, well, someone that puts God first in their life, probably. I said, okay. What else? He said, well, someone who's, who's a family man. Someone who cares about his family. And yet we look at all these, really, six through eight, and even into ten, we see this description of who God loves. It's this description of the person that Christ dies for. And we might be shocked at who it is. First it says, For while we were still weak, Christ, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So God demonstrates His love toward a people that are powerless, sapped of all spiritual strength, those that are morally bankrupt and can't do anything about it. 
God loves and demonstrates his love toward a spiritually weak people. Goes on to say that Christ died for the ungodly. God is good, simply put. God loves people who are not good, who are bad. And opposites don't attract. We're substantively opposite of the nature of God. We're nothing like God. And yet God has demonstrated His love toward the ungodly. He goes on to say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Disobedient, irreverent, people who miss the mark, who fall short of the glory of God. Sinners. God has demonstrated His love, died for sinners. And if that wasn't shocking enough, the text goes on to say, for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Enemies. God loves the weak, the ungodly, the sinners, His enemies. Describe for me the kind of people that God loves in the cross of Jesus Christ. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. And I did, by the way, go on to tell them that. And so basically I used him for sermon prep. Amen? (laughs) And when he heard that, he was shocked. And I wonder if some of you, as you hear this language about the kind of people that God loves, and when God loves them, even when they were weak, even when they were in sin, even when they were ungodly, even when they were enemies. God loved them in Jesus Christ. That may be a shock to you, but please, hear it. Hear it. And another designation that we must not overlook is the pronouns that Paul is using. He's talking about himself here. And he's talking about the Romans that are, that are reading this for the first time. And he's talking about us. He's saying, this is, this is personal. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly, right? But God shows his love for us. And while we were sinners, for if while we were enemies, he's talking about us. This is us here. And this is when God loved us. When we were sinful and ungodly and far from Him, His enemies. That's when God loved us. Us. Not when we cleaned ourselves up and and figured it all out and got ourselves morally in order so that God might accept us. The contrary. God loves the most undeserving of people. That's the nature of the Gospel. God loves us when we don't deserve it. When we deserve His wrath. And He loves us because of Christ. His death. His sacrifice. His blood. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what makes this message different than any other message in any religion. This love of God. And so what we see is that while we would say this is who we, who God would love, based on our own conception of love, that in the death of Christ on the cross, there's a distinguished love in God that is so 
different than our conceptions of love and what we would expect. It turns the tables upside down. And so not only does God demonstrate His love for us on the cross, He distinguishes His love from any other kind of love. A love for the weak, the ungodly, the sinner, and the enemy. That is a love unlike any other. And here's what's wonderful. God's love is not defined by our worth. It's the opposite. It's our worth is rather defined by the love of God. And so you're thinking to yourself, God would never love me because of who I am. Uh Uh-uh. He loves you because of who He is and what He has done. And now your dignity and your value and your worth is founded upon Him and His love for you, not your own inability and inadequacy. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the love of God. And that is a love unlike any other. The very nature of the gospel. There's no sin too bad. There's no sinner too lost. There's no match for the love of God in Christ on the cross. There's no need to doubt the reality of God's love. And there's no need to doubt the application of God's love to you who know Christ by faith. No need to doubt it. And if you have not embraced Christ by faith, do so now. Run to Him now. Trust in Him now. For Christ has died so that you might live and be accepted by God. No matter how far sin has taken you, God will find you out if you just put your arms out and receive His love through Jesus Christ on the cross for you. There's no need to doubt the reality of God's love or the application of God's love. Amen? Amen. You say, okay, great. Sure. There is a love of God. It applies to me. But I don't really know if I need it. It's not really required, is it? I can just receive it and kind of move on with my life. It's Sunday. But tomorrow's Monday. I mean, does it really have an impact on my life, nine to five? Is it really going to help me be a better worker, a better husband, take care of my house? I mean, is it really going to help me? Is it really effective? You see, it's in church that we think about things that we don't think about in the nine to five, but we should be thinking about. Things that are eternally applicable. Things that bring about change and are effective. You may say here today, it's nice to know about the God of love, but but it's not really necessary. It doesn't really help me. But what I'm here to tell you today is that Paul is saying that without the application of the love of God, without receiving it, and it being appropriated and applied to your life, you will have zero assurance in eternity. Zero assurance of knowing and enjoying God. You will have zero hope without the application of the love of God in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You have no hope. There is nowhere else to go. Look at what he says. It says, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, death, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So verse, my eyes, verse 9 says that we've been justified by his blood. So what he's saying there is, if it were not for the death of the Son of God, you would still stand before God guilty. Guilty. The verdict would come in guilty, condemned. But because of the love of God and the death of His Son, we are now justified. We are now declared not guilty in God's courtroom. That is applicable. That is effective. It effected something that nothing else could do. No works of the law, no merit, no morality, no nice Christian, uh, no nice American life. No. Not guilty. So without the application of the love of God and the death of His Son, we are guilty. But now, because of the death, listen to that, we have now been justified by His blood. It's something that we have now. It's not something that we're waiting. It's something that we have now. We experience it today. The not guilty nature of salvation. We have it now. We appropriate it. It affects our lives and our spirits and our standing before God now. Do not, a, do not doubt the necessity of the love of God in the death of His Son. Not only that, without the application of the love of God in the death of His Son, we are hopelessly doomed. For if while we were, oh, I'm sorry, we have now been justified by His blood, verse 9, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Without the death of the Son of God, without the blood on the cross, without the, the real, actual, historical event taking place for us, guess what? We are hopelessly doomed. We will endure the wrath of God when He returns. And that's why we're preaching today. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Be reconciled to God. Hear the message of God's love in Jesus Christ on the cross for your sin and be reconciled to God so that you might be saved from His wrath when He returns. Find a more important application or effect in salvation from eternal damnation. Worried about 401ks. Need to be worried about eternity. And last, without the application of the love of God and the death of the Son, we are eternally at odds with God. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. In a very real sense, sin had driven a wedge between us and God. We could not know Him. We could not enjoy Him. We could not worship Him. We could not obey Him. There was a true turning away between man and God. We are at enmity with God, the Scriptures teach. Enemies. Hostility existed between sinful man and holy God. And what we see here is that in the death of Jesus, all that hostility, all of that wrath is fully satisfied in the cross of Christ. 
And now God's holy, righteous indignation is absolved. And for those who have embraced God by faith in that work of Jesus, there is now a very real reconciliation, a turning back so that we might know Him and enjoy Him and worship Him. We are not just put in a neutral standing with God we will, where we just won't get a spanking. No. We are put back into reconciled relationship of delight and obedience and joy and protection and safety. We are now restored back into the very thing that we were created to be, to know and enjoy and obey and worship God. Reconciliation. Without the death of Christ on the cross, you would, be, you would remain at enmity with God. So may we not doubt the necessity of the love of God in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is required. It is necessary. There is no other way to be not guilty, to be safe from wrath, and to be restored, reconciled back in relationship with Him. It is of absolute necessity. This is not just about being nice. Love of God, oh, that's nice. This is about the necessity of the cross to fully redeem and save us from all that we have fallen from and fallen in, I should say. There's no need to doubt the reality of God's love. There's no need to doubt the application of God's love. And there's absolutely no need to doubt the effect, the accomplishment, what it did and what it secured for us. No need to doubt the effectiveness and necessity of the love of God. And yet, we may even recognize here today that such a story of a crucified Jesus, so gruesome, so awful, doesn't sound like love at all. There are some that would hear this and say, this is disgusting. They would hear of a love of, of, a, of, a, of a father who would, who would send his son to die and to be slaughtered. Is, is grotesque as some sort of cosmic child abuse. And that really, we, a people who celebrate such an act, are morbid and messed up. And that we don't really understand love at all. So some would doubt the joy that comes with the love of God in the death of His Son. Some would doubt the joy. And but Paul is saying this, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's talking about His death, His offering, His sacrifice, His crucifixion. We're rejoicing in God through this crucifixion. That we're finding joy in the fact that this occurred. That sounds sick. That sounds morbid. Is it odd or what to rejoice in the love of a God who sends His Son to hang on a tree? So we recognize that some may despise and thus dismiss this as an act of God's love. 
Many in the liberal church would do so. You say, oh, really? I say, yeah. The world and many of the people within, even the liberal church, would be offended by this idea. They would not see this as a loving act. So maybe even you sitting there, you go, this is messed up. This doesn't make sense. Bishop John Shelby Spong elaborates in two of his books. One book is A New Christianity for a New World. He speaks of 12 points of reform. He says this, number six, the view of the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of the world is a barbarian idea based on primitive concepts of God and must be dismissed. Bishop John Shelby Spong. In his other book, entitled Jesus as Rescuer, colon, an image that has to go, he says this, a human father who would nail his son to a cross for any purpose would be arrested for child abuse. I would choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son. This is the world in which we live. And yet Paul writes and includes the Romans in. And now us, he says much more than that. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation, through His substitutionary death on a cross for us. That's how. We rejoice in God through Christ who gave us reconciliation, through His death on the cross in our place. So we may despise and thus dismiss this, but I think for us, while that may be a struggle, we deal with a much more subtle problem. As we think about the love of God in Christ on the cross and what it secured for us, as we think about that, I think the thing that we struggle with is that we've grown numb to this love. That we have grown bored with it. We've not thought about it for five more minutes at this kind of level that Paul is articulating here for the Romans. He wants to reinforce the love of God through the death of His Son. Because a superficial understanding might lead us to boredom. Might lead us to doubt of its necessity and reality and application. So we have to understand it at a deeper level. But I think many of us would just simply be distracted by this joy that is found in this unique kind of love. Because we're so enamored with the temporal joys that this world is giving to us. We're too busy rejoicing in the world's pleasures and the technological advances that we have come up with. That we have only so much joy to go around. So much attention. And we've given ourselves to the moment. To the temporal joy. We've gone deep into the, to the pleasures of this world. And we've missed out on the true 
fountain of joy, and that is found in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. It's because of this that we rejoice in God. The ultimate outcome of the gospel is a people who now take joy in God. Do you take joy in God? Does this heighten your joy in God? The thought that Christ did what was necessary for you to do something that you could not do on your own? Have you taken delight in this effective work in history? Or have you lost sight of its depth and its joys? Have you been enamored with this world and been so distracted by the nine to five and and all the, the little joys that we can make up for ourselves that we've forgotten about the love of God? In the death of Jesus. Suburban Christianity is the problem, guys. Why we're bored? Why we're numb? Because we're distracted with the suburban life. We're in the suburbs, reaching the suburbs. Why? What's in the way? The suburbs. i got to be honest, this, is, this hit me hard this week. Because I know I can also get distracted and bored and superficial in my thinking and meditation and appreciation of the cross of Christ. And we forget the whole reason why we ever showed up in a room like this. Because of that symbol and what it signifies. Because everywhere we went... We heard of, 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 uh, of what people needed from us. We heard about if you just try harder and do a little bit better, then someone's going to love you everywhere. If you work hard, you'll achieve. But when you come here and you see that, you're reminded that you receive because God gives. And that kind of love, that kind of in your place, absorbing the wrath that you deserve, that kind of that just painful process, that passion, that kind of obedience is what is the most amazing thing about the God we worship. It is the fulcrum of the story. Everything before and everything after, it all uh, just kind of teeter-totters on the fulcrum of the cross of Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we worship. Do not forget about the cross of Christ. Do not doubt or challenge His love for you in the cross of Christ. It is real. It is applicable. It is necessary. And there is no other joy like it. And so I plead with you. Don't doubt the love of God. Not for one second. Don't doubt the love of God for one second For those who have been justified by faith. Do not doubt it for one second. You may hear the challenge. And and the blaming schemes of the enemy. You may hear the condemnation of Satan. But understand this. That if you have been justified in Christ. You have been loved. You are loved. In the death of Jesus Christ. So do not doubt it. There is no need. In an age of skepticism. Where all the news that we hear, we're critical of. There's fake news. You can't believe them. You can't believe this. There's a lot of doubting, and probably rightfully so in many ways when we look at the media. 
But when we hear the message of love in the gospel, there is no need to doubt. Run into the arms of your loving Savior. Trust in Him for salvation. He will not cast you out, those whom He has called to Himself. But don't doubt the love of God. Trust in the love of God. Trust in it. Build your life on it. And rejoice in it. Amen? No need to doubt the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Simple prayer entitled by the Puritans. Let love luster at Calvary. I pray that for each and every one of us here this morning, that we would see not just a light behind the cross in the back of this room, but I pray that each and every one of us would see the luster of the event, the historic necessary joy unlike any other sacrificial death Jesus Christ at Calvary may that love luster in our hearts and luster in the lives of the people we know in Jesus name